We're going to talk about the building itself, uh, how it came to being here, the thinking was behind it, the aims and the aspirations for it, and also about the practice that David and Rem have been part of, indeed Rem founding for so many years now, an international practice that has brought Rem the Pritzker Prize, uh, international accolades, and the standing as one of the most celebrated architects of our times. Um, but uh, Rem, I'll come to you in just a moment. I'm going to give you a breather. He's been working, you've been working pretty hard, haven't you? You'll need your microphone for this bit. No, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah, he's been, and he uh, gave a formidable lecture last night as well, so just a little bit of a breather. David, for those who weren't here at the um, launch uh, on Monday evening, can you just share with us just again that lovely little story of when you received the call, the approach from Naomi for you guys to put together this year's M Pavilion? And... Um, the, the rather cheeky thing that you immediately did in response, or, or didn't do, should I say? It was also a bit uh, a running gag, of course, uh, for the opening. No, but uh, Naomi and uh, we know each other already for about five years. Uh, had very inspiring conversations when I came to Melbourne. Uh, did some explorations on the city uh, together and, and had more than enough communication during that four to five years. And then when we received the call, we were, of course very delighted and, and at the same time also a bit surprised. Um, and, uh, Why were you surprised? <laughs> I, will, I will tell you that in private, not for 300 people. <laughs> oh, no, that, well, that's my next <coughs> follow-up question, so get okay, ready to that, answer that. that. That's fine. Um, and then, obviously, we discussed it, uh, and, and Naomi was eager to hear back from us immediately, but uh, we, we called two days later, and then that was for her then also the tension that she needed, which was nice. It's always useful to have that sort of tension, yes. So you, you deliberately kept her, wait, her waiting for 48 hours? Yes. Do you do, this with all, do you do this with all of your clients? Sometimes longer. <laughs> what point are you trying to make? Don't always say yes. <laughs> well, I, it's said that we're often defined by what we say no to, really, rather than what we say yes. So the, the 48 hours wait was a bit of a feint. So that was a little bit of vaudeville. You were, I imagine, keen to accept. Of course. It's, it's really nice, especially in an area where uh, you start up uh, work uh, within the portfolio. For me, with a big personal interest already for years. Um, and we're doing now work here in Melbourne, in Sydney and, and in Perth, uh, the Perth Museum. It, it was really nice that we can give such a contribution to the city and especially to its debate about its future. Uh, also in the current time, after kind of Melbourne being elected seven years in a row, most uh, livable city, um, but not knowing exactly what all needs to happen, kind of to give a contribution to that debate. And, and that was for us um, key to, to accept uh, such a thing. There needs to be uh, a reason. It cannot just be an object. And, and it is also not designed as that object. It is really designed as a, a place for, no, look what is happening here, kind of... Uh, debate and, and kind of a, a way of engagement. Yeah. Rem, when you're asked to design something that is a temporary structure, and, and I know that you've done um, pavilions before, I guess probably most notably for Prada in, in um, South Korea, is it a different mindset as a designer and a thinker around space that you have to use for a temporary structure as opposed to another one? Uh, yeah, it's, it's very different uh, because, of course, you uh, feel uh, less of a burden 
Um, I think there is an assumption that architecture is permanent. Uh, that is, in, the, in a certain way, less and less true. Uh, already in, our, in the career of our office, maybe four or five buildings have simply vanished. But what is wonderful uh, about pavilions is that you can experiment much more than with a kind of real building. So you can experiment with materials, you can experiment with intentions, you can do things with a pavilion that you wanted to do but were never able to do really in, in kind of buildings. And what is maybe particularly interesting in, in buildings, you have to satisfy many different demands. Uh, in a pavilion, you can satisfy only one demand such as in this case we wanted and we were asked to do something where people could meet uh, and where communities could be configured in different for different occasions and and the fact that we could only do that uh, is a kind of big relief. I, I suspect, um, in fact I, I know in some cases, we have a lot of design and architecture students and, uh, and workers and employees here today. Is that right? Can I see a show of hands or whether that's your field of endeavour? Yes, the majority. Welcome. Uh, so I, I want to actually get into some of the nitty-gritty because I think it would be of interest to many of you. Naomi, can you tell me about the brief? How, how specific is the brief in building M Pavilion? Um, David talked about the brief yesterday as well and he said that he was thrilled that it was only one page. I actually tried to cut it down even further because I really feel that this has to be, like Rem said, a, an experimental space. So the, least, the less I say about what it's needed for, um, I wanted to create a utopian space that people could engage with. Mm. And so briefly, that is the brief. Did you have uh, dimensions? Did you have materials? We have dimensions as a result of the City of Melbourne's needs on this space. So we have a 14-metre square um, footplate, but there are no other um, dimensions or anything else. What did you think of the brief when you saw how brief it was, Rem? Uh, you need your microphone. <laughs> well, well um, maybe surprise, but, but uh, not really. Uh, it was... Uh, I mean, we knew Naomi. Uh, I didn't know her personally, but... We, by reputation, so uh, we expected uh, condensed uh, intelligence and, and ambition. <laughs> and it was all there? Yeah. Okay, you've had some time now, David, to think of a nice political answer to the question about why you were surprised to receive this request um, from Naomi. What's your answer? Um, very often uh, kind of exercises like this are, are um, given to architects that that um, start up uh, their practice and, and, and kind of have uh, work in, an, in another realm than, than globally uh, like we did. Obviously, I, I have seen all three previous uh, M pavilions. I had a lot of discussion with Naomi about kind of why she chose the architects. Um, and for me... It was maybe not a surprise that there was an interest to work together because that's what we were already doing, but that she would ask us for the the fourth, especially because I knew that she was um, starting to talk about continuing it for for more years. Um, yeah, it just came as a as a surprise because there was already that communication and there was kind of a lot to talk about it. But so it, so it was a pleasant surprise. And, and obviously, uh, I, I also have to be honest, I had hoped it that she would ask us uh, already before. So kind of, it's not that I, see. That, that I don't feel... That now the politics is coming out. <laughs> no, now the real answer. He was pissed off it took so long for you to call Naomi. <laughs> That's what it was. Um, 
So what did you want to achieve, Rem, when you, when you understood what the space was, the environment that it was coming into, the period of time it would be here? Did you immediately have some ideas around not necessarily the form, although maybe you had that too, but what you wanted to achieve from the building? Uh, I think it's very difficult to kind of really describe when you have an idea. Uh, and, and actually I'm almost incapable of defining uh, even what an idea is. How it works in our offices that we notice that somebody wants something and that we begin to kind of talk about what that person is, where the site is, uh, what kind of culture it is, what is the kind of moment in this culture, um, what we fantasize about uh, Melbourne or Australia. Uh, and I have to say that I didn't fantasize a lot about Australia. Uh, it's kind of really to David's credit and also to the credit of our office that we enable the kind of initiative of individual partners to kind of really begin to explore a territory uh, almost out of nowhere. So it's kind of really uh, an ongoing conversations in which kind of very quickly also collaborators of the office participate. So an idea emerges from that, but uh, the idea was, I guess, simply that we are not going to do, and, and that is maybe important, that ideas are also defined by as much by what you want to do as by what you don't want to do. And particularly in our case, it's kind of very an accumulation of things we want to avoid that leads us to what we actually end up with. And what do you want to avoid? Well, I think that uh, prevenience in the kind of recent times and architecture in general in kind of recent time has been pushed simply by, a kind of ex by expectations and by the forces of the market to become uh, increasingly exaggerated uh, and uh, exuberant, but uh, that kind of exuberance is very often a kind of fake exuberance uh, and verging on eccentricity, and, and somehow we, we have been very reticent to go that way, and, and so we have been systematically looking at ways to avoid that. Yeah? That's interesting to me because I guess if we go back in history and particularly Melbourne's history um, around about uh, 1900 and, and, and earlier in the, um, in the late 1880s, the temporary palaces, the exhibition halls, and we have one remaining here which is a very important building up in Carlton, were exactly that, very exuberant, <laughs> exaggerated, yeah. uh, dr dramatic uh, halls that were supposed to be temporary, but in our case, I think in, probably in one of the sole cases in the world, yeah. remains. Yeah, I think there's a place for exuberance uh, if it can really express real vitality and kind of real energy and real imagination. Uh, but, uh, and, and so we do exuberance uh, too, uh, <laughs> when it's appropriate. But I think that here it was kind of really uh, interested to, interesting to do the minimum, but to have a kind of maximum effect. And, and so in that sense, for me, the essence in this pavilion is not here, but there. And, and if I see the skyline, uh, I think that it kind of really shows what we wanted to achieve. Well, this is the remarkable thing. I've been in this pavilion a couple of times now, and I'm sure that in visiting here today and before you, I hope you've been in here too, is that you've used the outside space as much as the inside space. The extraordinary thing about this lowered um, ceiling and this sort of floating roof is the framing of this amazing landscape out there. It, it is like you have created a picture postcard of a landscape that already existed, David. 
Uh, that was one of the real uh, thoughts from the beginning, and, and I also have to credit the team. Of course, we are sitting here giving the interview, but Lawrence and Miguel, who are also here somewhere, worked with us all the time. Uh, and you know, one of the key things was when you approach from the city, you see uh, the nature and the beauty of the gardens, and the city is in your back. And, and we thought it was interesting, if you want to have a debate of the city, to actually turn the view towards uh, the city when you have arrived. Uh, so we made the threshold of going in as low as possible to make sure that you really have the feeling, okay, now I'm going in. And then when you sit down, you turn around and you get this frame of the skyline of the city. And that was obviously one of the, the key juxtapositions we wanted to create. You come into nature, you have the feeling you're outside, and then uh, you're confronted with that city the moment you, you sit down. And, and therefore, that, that lower threshold was, was actually very important that we could frame it. I, yesterday at the lecture, some of you might have been there, I showed a picture uh, kind of that I took myself from, from the back, kind of looking at the, and it is almost like a division in two, kind of with, with the people and, and then kind of the sky and, and the city. And that for us was really key to, in gardens, in a, a park, natural environment, to talk about the city, you need that confrontation and therefore the frame. I have to say that from this perspective, you all look absolutely marvellous, just perfectly framed in this panoramic photograph. It's fantastic. Rem, I wanted to ask you, are you a competitive person? That's a serious question. I mean, you're, you're, a, you're, you're in a marketplace. Are you competitive? Um... I think, yeah, of course, I'm competitive. Um, there, there's, I have many ambitions, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the kind of system of architecture today uh, works through a lot of uh, competitions. Uh, and I would say that the ubiquity of competitions are, are having a kind of really disastrous effect on uh, the relationships uh, between architects. Because uh, maybe kind of even 20 years ago there was a kind of solidarity, but I think that in the last 20 years that solidarity has kind of increasingly eroded, and basically we are asked to be at each other's throat uh, almost permanently. And so yes, I can handle that, but uh, no, it's not a kind of very pleasant uh, way, and it's not. My, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more interested in, in creating solidarity and, and in creating coherence and, and creating a kind of movement rather than this uh, isolated competition between uh, different identities. I, and I want to later on mm -hmm. go on and talk about how I know that your firm has engaged in a number of, of public mm -hmm. and international competitions, and which is a, a risky thing to do, an, an expensive and, and resource-using thing without a certain mm -hmm. um, outcome. But in this case then, taking into account the natural competition and competitiveness that's in you, did you spend much time looking at the previous pavilions and other pavilions and want to mark out something distinctly different <laughs> no, for yourself? That, that, that's not, not how it works. I mean, yes, I looked and we looked and we discussed and David, uh, you know, having been there was very clear in terms of what had happened uh, before, but you don't directly compete uh, you know, in terms of want to do a different or a kind of better thing. It's more that you want to uh, kind of define, have a sense of where you can uh, innovate or where you can uh, emphasize something that hasn't been done before. Yeah? Yeah, so it's not a direct comp competition at all. No, uh, plus the, your best things you don't do because you're looking at others. Uh, the, your best things do because you have an intuition of what 
is is there uh, and and is needed in that place. So also when we do a competition, which we do less and less as a firm, uh, we, we we are not trying to figure out okay who is doing what. Uh, kind of, we we try to establish our own merits and try to present them in the best possible way. And if that's the right answer, then you will win that competition. If you start looking around. Uh, and, and trying to anticipate what others do, and therefore you do it something different, then then it just doesn't it doesn't get in under your skin, and then it's also difficult to present, and it doesn't become your own. So a competition, you should try to really kind of put on your eye shades and and focus on what you think is the right answer, and and then the outcome uh, will. Uh, come later, if that's good enough or not. Yeah. Can, I, can I just add also, when I was looking at the four pavilions, which was my initial discussion with the City of Melbourne and the State, I was looking for four very different types of architects. So there was never a sense for me that these four different architects would compete in any way. Each would respond, and I chose them because I felt that they would respond uniquely to the space and I think one of the things that Rem and David have talked about is the fact that they haven't come in and imposed anything on the landscape. They've actually worked so beautifully in this pavilion with the landscape. And if you can see in the south corner here, which was always a problematic for us, this south corner is totally protected now, um, which is one of the other beautiful elements of this pavilion. Yes, if you manage to shut out the south wind in Melbourne, you've done an amazingly good thing, Exactly, I uh, would say. Uh, can, I, can I briefly return to the issue of competition? Because David was uh, saying uh, you don't do your best uh, work by looking at others. I think that uh, actually we look or I look at others kind of a lot. Uh, and, uh, and this is what I meant in terms of kind of solidarity. Uh, I'm beyond an architect. I've also for instance, uh, done a book uh, of interviews with uh, a group of Japanese architects who were active in the 70s and 80s. And that was kind of really uh, an effort to reconstruct and to understand what they were doing, uh, which we have used systematically to refine our understanding of what we can do. So in that sense, uh, I'm, I'm kind of much more interested in constructing an architectural culture than in in competing per se. And and that is also uh, true, I think, of our own work that we try to uh, not necessarily kind of cut ourselves loose of particular traditions or particular movements, but uh, invest in where it really makes sense or where others didn't invest before. So to, to make it just a bit more interesting. I also really meant kind of, okay, yeah, you yeah, don't yeah. look at what the other competitors the competitor is proposing no, for that specific yeah, competition. Yeah. I wasn't correcting you. I was no, no, no. Uh, just, no, just to enlighten the public what I meant. He was correcting me. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit and talk to us about the fabrication of the building. Um, for those who may not have been here or, or seen any of the interviews so far, David, what is this building made from? Uh, oh, that's quite simple. That's concrete, a lot of aluminum and some wood, uh, and and plants and dirt. Uh, but you know, the 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 idea was, uh, of course, we knew that we were going to get a very short time, about two to two and a half months, to construct it. Um, of course, we also have a budget uh, to meet. Uh, luckily, because that tension is needed to get the maximum. What what is the budget? Uh, you should ask Naomi and not me. No, uh, no what's we're the not discussing budgets. Exactly. 
that, oh, I've, I've never, I've never heard a client and an architect say that to each other. I, 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 I expect, I expected that you would say that. Um, uh, so the, now we, then we started looking at what, what is craftsmanship uh, that can really help us to achieve our goals. And uh, prefabrication is, is, is something that is, is much more controlled. Uh, we knew that we were going to build in wintertime. Um, and we wanted to achieve kind of the aluminum uh, look and the, 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 the alien floating roof versus the, the really m more natural embedded uh, amphitheater. Uh, and to prefabricate that was then also a decision. So a lot of people told me, kind of, when is your pavilion coming up? The opening is in two weeks. We don't see anything on site yet. And that was exactly a choice we made. So we started only six weeks before the opening with making the floor and, and starting to create the amphitheater. Uh, and, and what is floating above us only came kind of last week. But it was prefabricated, it was tested, it was hanged together, uh, and, and we knew it was going to work. And then, then when it came to site, obviously you have all kinds of small issues you didn't foresee, uh, but then it went uh, rather quickly. I came last weekend uh, to check out the site, and there was really seriously no roof. So the, the idea of, of prefabrication was important, and it's also kind of a comment to the, to the Australian building industry. When you do something on site, of course, labor is extremely expensive here, uh, uh, and, and everybody wants to control it big time. So you have maybe three workers and five managers working around to control if it's going well. If you do something in a factory, there's one person leading uh, the exercise, and there are 10 people working on it. And that for us, we really wanted to achieve the maximum. So if you just do the math on, on that, uh, and then you see it's, it's cheaper and you get more. Uh, and that was a real decision why we choose for also prefabrication and, and more or less as a mechano put it together yeah, at kit. the last minute. Yeah, it's a kit of parts which comes in. It was looking very scary three days before the opening though. I, I know, David, you're presenting this as some incredibly, you know, calm and reasonable thing that, you know, several weeks before there was nothing here. You must have given a lot of people quite a number of heart attacks. Uh, yes, we did. It's so nice to have an interview subject who answers the questions, don't you find? After my years of interviewing politicians, this is most refreshing. You've, um, you've alluded to the problems and the difficulties that, I mean, always happen when you put up a building, or myriad things that you never expect. I want to ask you something different. W was there a pleasant surprise that came along as part of constructing this pavilion that you didn't expect and was a, a, good, res a good resolution of something? I think what was really interesting is that kind of instead of um, an, an, a contractor that kind of has a certain role to play and has to do a delivery... Uh, here we had to do the delivery, and the contractor was our were our hands to get it done. And that relationship we were able to establish with Kane Construction, um, therefore, was a very collaborative one. Uh, and and uh, David Purcell and Tony, they were extremely keen to also deliver us the maximum they could uh, because of that. So it, in, I, I think that was a very pleasant surprise. We were really working with the contractor. Um, in, in Australia, the market is contractor-led, the procurement is very different, so that you see that it could really work, uh, that, that, that you, you, you work together, and that was, for us, really nice. And because of that, we also got extra things that we couldn't think of, uh, uh, that, that uh, the contractor could think of himself, and, and that was, for example, the mechanism under this rotating tribune, kind of, they came up with the solution, uh, we draw something, and, and that was 
that functioned, but they improved it, and they really were proud of, of doing that, and that was really amazing uh, in the communication. Yeah. Well, well, what I think uh, uh, has been very surprising to me is the role that this pavilion plays in the city. This is a city of six million people. You would not expect that something as uh, tiny uh, could have an impact uh, and, and would be taken uh, seriously uh, and would not seem frivolous in terms of uh, all the other issues that uh, we have. But here it seems to be really part of a, a, a real a genuine urban expectation and be part of a, 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 a kind of assessment of how well the city is doing. And that, that's really touching. I want to just move on slightly, Ren, from your observation before about um, exuberant buildings because you, you said at one time, it was a quote of yours that's really stayed with me, that architecture is forcing people to be extravagant. There's a fatigue with originality and an interest now in the modesty of the architect. And there's something about the materiality of this building that, to me, seems to sink in with that observation. Yeah. What did you mean? I, I didn't mean that architecture is uh, forcing people to extravagance. I, I feel that kind of uh, the expectations uh, that are mostly uh, defined by developers and by the commercial uh, sector is pushing architecture into a kind of spectacular uh, range. And I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with spe spectacle, but I think there is something wrong with, with spectacle if it becomes the only kind of issue. So I think you can do spectacular buildings that are extremely serious and that kind of uh, cover and offer a, a lot and that are kind of really intelligent responses to uh, a de uh, 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 authentic demand. But there's also a lot, lot of spectacle now that is kind of bloated uh, in its uh, own terms. And again, it's not architects who are pushing that, it's a kind of pressure that uh, comes at you and, and that is part of this uh, competitive system. I can imagine. But, but I would also say that, kind of, of course, time is evolving kind of very quickly, uh, maybe quicker than ever. And I would say that the relevance of this statement is much more intense uh, five years ago than it is now because uh, I think you can see in general a kind of calming down of architecture. I read in that, um, in that observation, in that interview, the observation about the modesty of the architect. In my mind, it immediately resounded with me and made a connection to, to the Arte Povera movement of, uh, in, of Italy in the, um, in the 1970s. Is, is there something of that that you're reaching towards there, or am I missing the point? Uh, uh, no, I, I think that's definitely my generation, and I think that... Uh, it is not necessarily that we are modest, but that, that, that we enjoy using modest means to have large effects. And, and that uh, I would definitely recognize that as a kind of um, electric affinity. Yeah. But that must be a difficult uh, philosophy to maintain in, in the face of clients who want large statements, clients who have big sums of money to spend, clients who have big uh, needs to fulfil, and they also are hiring one of the great architects and want the big bloody statement to go with it? Um, I, I, I think every architecture is, and, and I'm happy that you uh, can introduce the client, uh, good architecture only happens if there's a kind of real fusion between client and architect. Uh, and it, architecture can be better if the client is really a, a, a person or a kind of recognizable ambition who can articulate their ambitions. 
and we consider it our specialism to um, in those dialogues uh, to kind of really achieve both their and our own uh, ambitions. And so, as I said, we do almost everything that people want. If they want something kind of really strong or something really uh, calm, or we 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 can kind of move with them. Uh, but we don't have an a priori. Everything depends on the uh, on the kind of fusion of the client's ambition. Did you want to come in here, David, and reflect on that? No, I think that the relationship with the client is important, but we also should not say that the client is, is one typology these days. You know, there are many typologies of clients, and I think for OMA it has always been very important to work both on the public and the private side and everything in between, because uh, by working with the, the market economy, uh, you learn certain things. By working in the public sphere, you learn certain things, and when you work with... Uh, people like Naomi that are singly commissioning you, you learn other things. And you can uh, you can really work with all the things you learn kind of in every circumstance. So it's also about crossover. Um, like, let's say 100 years ago, clients were very often professional clients working in a very small context, working for one firm or one government. Now uh, clients are kind of working globally, uh, can be a, a huge developer uh, to, to one person, to a government that doesn't have uh, the means itself anymore to create the vision and ask you to do it. So it, the, 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 the client itself is such a diverse term and, and kind of what an architect does is kind of you mediate between their ambition, your ambition, your observation of the, of the site, your observation of what they brief and what maybe could be added to that to enrich uh, that ambition. So it's a constant uh, talking, constant movement and constant negotiation of which, which you need to enjoy but which you also train for and, and that is a kind of an important thing. So there is not one client, you don't have one trick, uh, every trick is different, every client is different, every process is different. So it's really about how do you manage that process and how do you move within it, and I think that is very important. Uh, I'm very happy that uh, David uses the word uh, learning, because I think there is something about architecture that uh, kind of people really don't realize, e even many architects don't realize it. Architecture is not uh, a kind of established body of knowledge that enables you to do something and to have a kind of intelligent response in every case, uh, and for me it's getting less and less that. It's kind of really uh, in a kind of field that is in itself uh, moving very rapidly in a kind of culture that is uh, part of globalization, but within globalization has uh, an almost limitless uh, amount of different systems and ideologies and kind of religions, etc., etc. Uh, the whole idea that you could actually know what to do is uh, is quite absurd, and that is also why... We have as part of our office, uh, which is called OMA, the kind of think tank, which is called AMO. It's simply a, a learning tool kind of inside uh, uh, the office that prepares us and enables us to, uh, before we even begin to uh, kind of think about something, to, to generate the field and the kind of insights that we eventually will need uh, as designers. There's something kind of doubly weird about architecture, because what we do is we create prototypes for things that are never re repeated. 
So uh, in that sense, you know, uh, every architecture is by definition insanely different from any other architecture. So it's a kind of permanent learning process, and the idea of a kind of established way of doing uh, uh, simply doesn't exist. I want to return to this concept of globalisation because I think it's really interesting in the context of, of architecture and the kind of architecture that you have been asked to do over the years. But just to stay with the, the client just for one last moment, because Naomi, I guess I could ask you to represent that, that person and, and, and that figure sitting here this afternoon because you, you are and you have been the client. Yeah. How, how do you see that role in, in what um, Rim and David have been saying? Well, as a client, my um, brief has always been in response to the architecture as well. So I agree with David when you give a brief to an architect. It is the relationship that you are actually forming with that architect. And I've always found in my relationships that the architect has actually added to it exactly what David said, that they have picked out things that I've never seen and been able to appreciate what I'm trying to achieve and always have heightened the um, brief as well. Do, in most of these cases, have have you e ended up in the same place or in the place where you imagined at the beginning of the process you might be? Um, I've always ended up in a much more perfect place. <laughs> I find architecture um, the most pure form of problem solving. I really enjoy that about architecture. I want to come back to that uh, observation of globalisation that you, that you made, um, Rem, because thinking back to when you started out um, and studying uh, design and architecture in London and then starting a practice, you must distinctly remember then, I guess, a, a before and after period of globalisation, its meanings and its effects and its role in, in the built environment and, and architecture. Well, um, I started in architecture in, it depends how you count, but basically in the 80s. So uh, it was already kind of a totally globalized world, and, and I think that globalization didn't start in the late part of the 20th century. I think it started kind of maybe around 1880 or maybe even earlier. Uh, but I think that the the... What what did start then, uh, and which is relatively uh, recent, is the ability of an architect to work in almost any different context and the kind of way in which we now uh, can spread our activity all over the world. And on the one hand, that is kind of really great, but on the other hand, uh, it imposes also an incredible responsibility uh, of not doing inappropriate things in kind of particular and very very often radically different uh, things where, for instance, if you simply uh, take the issue of color, uh, not a single color means the same in different parts of the globe. And, and the kind of differences, I would even claim that there is a special kind of spectrum of color for Melbourne and a different spectrum for color in Sydney. And so you, and that is only one aspect, but also the way people work, the way you can interact with workers, the way in which you have to, in every office, have now kind of about uh, 40 different nationalities, but also on every building site, you have an incredible kind of richness of uh, nationalities. So what architecture is, is essentially a kind of organized babble uh, with so many speeches, so many kind of differences, that uh, all of that uh, is, you know, both contributing enormously to inspiration, uh, ultimately, but also uh, contributing to uh, incredible complexities. 
You mentioned when you first started out um, as an as a architect and, and with your firm, it, it, looking back over it, do you believe that the, the spirit, the, the mission, if you like, the ethos of your firm, has it changed substantially from the beginning of time to, to now? Yeah. Um, it, it, it really literally is constantly changing and I think it's not only changing because of the changing times, it's also uh, changing because, as you said, there, there are so many kind of different forces that are constantly changing. But maybe in a really important way, it's also changed a lot because I started alone and I now have nine partners. And each of these partners uh, contributes a sensibility, uh, kind of expertise, uh, a, a domain of interest that has been deliberately chosen not to overlap with my own. So uh, it's, uh, and, and then the kind of whole situation is, of course, and David is involved in that, but I'm also involved in that, to orchestrate a kind of polyphony, which at the same time uh, enables every individual to, uh, to do and, and to be happy with, uh, with their own uh, room for maneuver. So... Go on. No. How does that practically work? David, can I bring you in here? I mean, nine partners, a number of different offices, you know, a very large international profile. Pra practically, how does that work in a sense of, of everyone bringing their, their, their point of view and their sensibility to bear? Of course, there needs to be a lot of communication uh, and, and, and kind of also sharing of, of these ideas uh, but also a lot of respect and and kind of let the tr trust in the fact that that first instinct or that first idea that somebody has as an interest can become something f that the company uh, can embody that can 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 work for us as a whole and and it is very often in uh, there is a lot of competition uh, uh, when there is a partnership or there is a uh, there's a lot of um, fight for free space but kind of if you if you have that as your base idea and you also are able to give that, that trust and, and openness uh, to it and try to orchestrate it by, by uh, instead of trying to control it, um, it, it, it can deliver you a lot. And in our case also, kind of, yeah, I, I'm born in the year that OMA started. I only came to OMA in 2008. So, so for me to, to be part of it is fantastic, but also to have my own realm and my own ideas embodied in it is 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 something if i if i feel that that is recognized and and contributing to the outcome that that is of course much more valuable than when you have to compete to 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 get it in and and that is i think what ram did extremely well is uh, recognizing kind of people around him that could kind of together infuse uh, uh, that idea but also to kind of give a platform, and, and I think that is what our office really is. It's a platform where, where there are now more than 300 people um, contributing to a debate and contributing to an, an outcome uh, that, that is not uh, prescribed, that is not kind of dictated by manuals and by efficiency rules and et cetera, et cetera. No, it's, it's defined by its outcome and what we try to achieve. And if you have all the same goal, then it's for a managing partner quite easy to to try to guide it and and to try to take some of the 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 things that maybe not work for the company away, and because everybody sees an opportunity for what might work, 
And I think that is that is also why my role, uh, why I can be an architect and manager at the same time, because guidance is, is something else than trying to be the police chef, uh, chief. And um, it would be, it would have been, I guess, lovely to speak about some buildings in in, in detail at this conversation this afternoon. But I, I find it's always really difficult when you don't have images or, or slides that you might be looking at. Um, instead, just endless descriptions. But I did want to ask you, Rem, if, if you would, to talk to us a little bit about an idea that I know matters to you a great deal at the moment and has for some time, which is about preservation and uh, and what what you keep and what architects in the past may have overlooked in their rush to create the new. And I think we saw that working really beautifully at the the Prada um, Foundation in Milan, for example, in the old distillery that you that you are rebuilt there. I think um, you're you're right that has become increasingly uh, fascination. But maybe I should uh, tell you about my first uh, involvement in preservation. Uh, maybe it was uh, kind of somewhere in the 80s. Uh, there was in the Dutch prison system uh, a series of jails, uh, and those jails were uh, completely like ideal architecture. They were kind of planned in the shape of a circle, and they had a dome, and basically all the cells were in the circle. And in the center of the kind of circle, there was a, a place for a guard. And the guard could kind of from that single position, kind of because of the transparency of the space, look at every cell. And that was called uh, panopticon. And so basically, I was asked to, um, to, to reinvent or to re equip that kind of prison for modern life. And it was like a really fantastic experience because, uh, first of all, I didn't know it was kind of responsible to do it. So I asked to be enclosed in the same prison for a week so that I could experience life in that uh, prison. And then I kind of realized that actually in the kind of hundred years that the building existed, its use had been completely transformed. The guards were no longer in the center. What was kind of a guard position was turned into a kind of covered enclosed area where the guards were having coffee. So kind of in, in and and basically the kind of regime where everyone was closed in their cell had been kind of abandoned. All the doors were open and the kind of uh, prisoners could move kind of freely through space. So what I really realized is that architecture is in a way a pathetic profession because it tries to be extremely precise, knowing that kind of uh, all your position uh, can be in vain and can be kind of reversed. Uh, uh, into its absolute opposite without any change to the building. So that then kind of made me realize that uh, apart from the ostensible point or the ostensible aim of any building, there's also uh, an almost endless, unlimited amount of interpretations that enable you to completely use it in a different way. That's a, a nice example of, I guess, the, the humility that you spoke of as well before, isn't it? <laughs> when you learn that that's, that's what can be done to your buildings. This, tell us a little bit, though, about your approach to and dealing with that, that very beautiful building in Milan that was turned into the Prada Foundation, because it seemed to me that your ideas of preservation really reached a, a very beautiful point there. Um, well, I, th I think that uh, it's, it's uh, again, they're working with uh, Prada is, uh, for Prada is, of course, uh, kind of working with uh, two super critical and two highly intelligent and sophisticated people. 
they're Italians, and so they don't have the slightest inhibition to go either this way or that way. Uh, and, and they kind of constantly alternate uh, between the two. Um, so uh, you have clients who are kind of very sharp and, and very direct. Um, from the very beginning, uh, it, it, let's say it is old and existing building, but it was not a monument. So that so we, we so it was a pretty humble, hardworking yeah, building. Yeah, we, we could take uh, certain liberties. And from the very beginning, they did not want the cliche of uh, an art foundation in old and existing buildings. They wanted a com combination of new and old. And I think that made it possible for us to uh, kind of really experiment with different kind of spe special conditions in the hope that each of those could either lend themselves particularly well for certain events or for certain kinds of art or uh, create experimental conditions. For instance, we are now finishing a tower, the last part of the foundation, where every next level is one meter taller than the other one. And there will be exhibitions of one painting that goes, first starts in the low building, low uh, room than in the taller room it ends in a uh, kind of very tall room and we will kind of simply look at what the effect is so it's not only for a foundation but it's also about the interaction between art and architecture uh, as part of the program that's part of a really important experience for you, wasn't it, Naomi? You mentioned this at, in the opening speech that you gave when you went into the, uh, the Prada Emporium slash gallery slash public space in, uh, in Soho yes. that, um, that this firm constructed. That's, that's something beyond anyone's shopping experience. Absolutely. And that was my very first experience of how REM had transformed a space. That was originally a brownstone which housed the Guggenheim. And... Um, in 2001, that building was completed and it was completely transformed into the most beautiful, beautiful retail environment I'd ever, ever seen. And the interesting thing about it was that you, didn't, you were not confronted by clothing or apparel or anything to do with garments, which was the normal way that things had been done in the retail space. You were confronted with a uh, beautiful open space with no garments and beautiful display. So it was very, very transforming just to see how much theatre REM had put into it. And um, you were very conscious that AMO had done a lot of work in looking at the consumer, trying to understand what the consumer wanted out of the retail environment. And for me, the interesting thing also was the digital transformation because you would go downstairs into this wonderful womb of a building and you would see a fitting room which looked like an open glass room and you'd be very intrepid about going into this open glass room and taking your clothes off. And the minute you actually stepped in, it became cloudy, so it lost its transparency. There were so many details that actually were so inspiring in that first environment that I saw. We have um, just about five or so minutes left of our discussion before we all come down with third-degree burns in this um Melbourne Spring. Um, but I wanted to ask both um, Rem and David to speak about, for me, a really important part of your project and what you do, which is your engagement with urban design, with placemaking, and something that really matters to the both of you. This is a to my mind, and it's a personal interest of mine, a crucial challenge for all cities around the world, some doing it better than others. Melbourne gets this place on the um, what is it, most livable cities list, and I frankly don't understand that, because while 
I might have a wonderfully livable experience of this city, lucky enough to live where I do. I know, I damn well know, that a lot of Melburnians absolutely do not. And they're stuck in gridlock traffic and they don't have public transport and they are not encouraged to walk and they don't have a community around them and they are miles from health provision or their place of work. What are the key things that cities have to change and grapple with, David, if they're actually going to say they've created a good place for their citizens? Um, that's a very difficult question because that is uh, for 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 each uh, for for each city that will be very different. Uh, but gonna we one of the things that that is really crucial is that you constantly review uh, what uh, the society asks and and what the city needs to provide. Of course, you can say there needs to be ample public space. There needs to be good infrastructure. There needs to be um, uh, inclusive uh, housing. There needs to be a heart, that, that a cultural heart. All these things are very true. Um, but if you j just take that as a sum, that doesn't mean uh, uh, you have a good city. Yes, you might rank the top of a list because they just tick off, is this there, that, but they don't see how it communicates together. And I think that's one of the key uh, things there is that you constantly review it, but put it in a context together and, and overlap these things and create, see if they actually create tension. Kind of for me, uh, we did a forum about livable cities uh, here this summer. Uh, kind of one of the, the most uh, amazing experiences I had uh, of Melbourne was kind of instead of staying here in this uh, environment, uh, just take a car and drive three and a half hours out and come three and a half hours back. Now, yeah, it, it, the most exciting part is at the beginning and at the end. Uh, and, and everything in between um, is quite questionable. So uh, also the interesting thing is if, if you look at the social structure it creates is that every, everybody that can afford least be, gets more further out uh, and they need to commute more. And while you would expect, actually, that maybe that's not very reasonable to ask. So, so all these type of, of things that you can never quantify in a list, these, these type of tensions, need to be there. And I think placemaking is also a word uh, that, that is interpreted by everybody differently. And, and therefore, debate and critical debate, uh, which sometimes just simply not occur, because, of course, critical debate is... A risk, um, and and that risk is is then potentially taking the economy or the GDP of a city away. So I think to create a vision for a city towards the future, you need to get, um, you need to look what the tension points are, how to deal with them, and get rid of only looking at the economy or only at safety and, and health, and actually take risks, do things new, change them. And in the future, our infrastructure is going to change. Kind of now, and especially here in Melbourne, 74% of the people have a car. I predict 10 years from now, almost nobody has a car, and you just order it with your handheld when you need it. That is going to be a significant change. Kind of, uh, I'm also, you know, the influx of people into the city. I, I like maybe if I look at the 600 square meter plot that your city is built on and the one-story house on it, but I'm pretty sure that more than 50% of uh, the people living here actually didn't grow up like that. Maybe also don't want it as their, uh, as their dream. Um, that takes a long time to transform it. So if you don't think about these things now and try to infuse the ideas 
of of the of the future you you can never anticipate and that's what many cities do kind of many cities just think oh if we change a little bit of this or inject a little bit of culture here or allow a little bit of differentiation here then then we're improving but it needs significant thinking david um you've described a situation that's got wildly off the track here in melbourne we have you know this extraordinarily expanded city and and fewer and fewer services as we head out to the perimeter of it can you share with us, or do they exist, any successful examples of cities that have found themselves in a similar situation as we are now, but have managed somehow to either walk that back or improve the situation for their citizens? I, also, that is kind of impossible to say because uh, the situation here is so specific. But, of course, cities that had to uh, revamp themselves or reinvent uh, themselves. I think uh, London is a good example, New York is a good example, but they might be the obvious examples. But maybe it's also interesting to look at cities that were very small, had rapid growth, and what they did. Cities like Shenzhen in, in, in China, which is maybe not a model that you uh, could mention for, for Melbourne, but you can learn a lot from what has happened there. And I think that that is uh, so. It's not about a president that you should copy, but it is about seeing what happens in different cities. Kind of why do they happen, and what if we transform the the why to here and not the solution, because that is what you see. Kind of the, the High Line in New York was a success. Now every respected city in the world wants a High Line. Can you please stop? <laughs> the only reason why the High Line works is because it's there and in New York and in that context. Kind of, so th these type of things, it's not about copying, it's about th why it works and then think about if, if we want a similar effect here, what do we need to do that our citizens will recognize and embrace? And it's not about bringing tourists to the city because the tourists are not going to solve your problem, they're going to make them worse. Kind of, I live in Amsterdam, uh, I have to say kind of, when it became a UNESCO heritage, life became worse for us. Our mayor wants to get rid of the UNESCO status because it's terrible for the city. So kind of, it's not people from outside that can bring the solution. It's people from the inside that live there, that breathe the city, and that can just simply have their demands. And they need to be voiced out, other than being satisfied. Politicians like to satisfy voices by just simply being re-elected. It's not about that. It's, not about it's, it's about voicing it out, thinking about it carefully, constructing a response to it that is visionary. And not just, oh, oh they want a cinema? Let's give them a cinema, then four years later I'm re-elected. Yeah, that's not a solution. Rem, can I just get you finally to, to come in here on this part of the conversation as well? And I guess reflecting on what David's had to say, but also for a lot of the young people here who are working in this profession in, in urban design, in planning, in architecture and the like if they want to go on and make effective and good changes to their city, what's the best way of approaching that? Um, <clears throat> I'm very bad in uh, giving uh, kind of instructions or uh, even in giving advice. But I'm very happy that uh, David raised uh, an, uh, a name uh, that is not particularly familiar and not particularly uh, kind of respected, maybe Shenzhen. I think that one of the important things about uh, cities and one of the that has happened in cities in the last 30 years, definitely as an effect of globalization, is that we still in our mind have the kind of model of a European city or a Western city. 
and we in our mind therefore kind of walk around with a kind of expectation that there is a center that facilities are in that center of a kind of classical typology of urban space uh, that we have kind of residential neighborhoods etc cetera, etc cetera. but in fact uh, what has happened in the last 30 years is that this initiative what the city is has been taken away from us uh, and that kind of almost any other culture then the rest is growing faster and therefore is creating much more urban substance than we have been doing in the we the rest have been doing in the past uh, thing so i think simply orienting your um your your view away from from the kind of precedents that we have deeply kind of imprinted in our kind of memory and and be open to other uh, conditions would be one of the most uh, fruitful things. I mean, I've never been so excited about an urban condition recently as I was uh, about the kind of city of Lagos uh, in Africa, a kind of city which is in every sense deprived of almost any of the classical kind of symptoms uh, of uh, correct urban life, but which is nevertheless living and inhabiting the area with a kind of vigor and intelligence and creativity and imagination which far exceeds kind of something you you've seen here. So, simply uh, expand the uh, topologies that you have in your head. I think it's a, a lovely final message when you're sitting inside a building that as it does actually pivot and rotate and reorient itself, and is angled exactly in that direction. Will you please thank our wonderful conversationalists this afternoon, Naomi Pilgrim, David Jonathan, and Rem Kulhas. And thank you for coming out. Remember, M Pavilion is here and open and thrumming all the way through summer. There's a really exciting program of conversations here. So check it out, find it online and come and visit us. Thanks so much.